Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. Good day, everybody, and welcome aboard. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak, and always like to put out the invitation at the start of your show, if um, you're with that esteemed cohort that's with us live if you want to scroll down to the bottom of the show page, that's where you will find the chat room. That's the perfect place if you have some observations you want to share during the course of the show or even a question you would like to uh, have us direct to our guest. If you put it there, we'll see it and do our best to bring it into the conversation. And if you got to head off and uh, take care of business at some point and you want to check out what you missed, if you haven't already, go over to iTunes, Spreaker, or one of your other podcast aggregators, and go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. That way, Midrats will be waiting for you at a time that's more convenient to your schedule. Now let's go ahead and bounce into today's topic. And as we advertised, we're going to do our post-election wrap-up. And every election cycle, it seems, it provides a preview for the next year. And especially with a midterm, I think the uh, the general election begins right after the new Congress is uh, sworn in, if not even beforehand. So uh, depend upon who's going to come in, that's going to help us understand better what type of issues we may see in the general election. But uh, more importantly, we'll be able to see who the players are in the national security arena that are going to influence, if not policy, at least budgets and emphasis, and uh, hopefully for the better down the road. Uh, we also, uh, with each election, there are people that uh, you're used to seeing and used to hearing from up at Congress who either retire or defeated or for, decide to find some other area they want to invest their time in. And we have new people coming in that might have uh, certain interest sets or come from certain congressional districts or have the backgrounds that you can see that they're going to be a, a player in the conversation, especially if they can uh, get more seniority down the road. And our guests for the full hour to discuss the implications of last week's election and the resulting upcoming Congress will be Claude Barabay and Dirk Maurer. Uh, everybody here who's been mid-rats for a while uh, know Claude really well. I was just teasing them during the pre-show that – we're uh, we're almost 13 years that he's been a guest on here. We're hitting our, our uh, 13th year next year, and Claude is one of our first guests. He's been here very often, um, at least once a year. We try to get him on more, but uh, he don't want to take up all the oxygen. But for people who may not be familiar with Claude, Claude, he is a an author of multiple books. His latest is On Wide Seas, the U.S. Navy in the Jacksonian Era. He is also a commander in the U.S. Naval Reserve, currently assigned to the Naval Warfare Development Center. And since 2005, he has been putting his Ph.D. to work 
uh, helping to educate the next generation of naval leaders by teaching over in the political science and history departments at the U.S. Naval Academy. And Claude brought with him today uh, somebody he's known for a long time, though in the pre-show we weren't able to get any stories about Claude out of him. But Dirk has a, a real deep background in both the executive and legislative branches and defense-related issues. He's currently the vice president at Layer 8 Security and a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. And he was a former deputy assistant secretary of defense for defense continuity and mission assurance, as well as other senior positions in DOD and in the Senate. He retired from the Marine Corps Reserve after 20 years, and he has his academic background from both the University of Washington and a JD from Georgetown University Law Center. Dirk and Claude, welcome to MidRats. Glad to have you aboard. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And we had a really long intro there, but uh, hey, got to got to set the table. And one thing I wanted to do because Claude's already got the mid rats format pretty much figured out. I, I guess I'd start um, the first question. I'll, I'll roll over at Claude. You know, before we get into some of the specifics of the players or issues, um, just over here in the provinces, coming into a midterm election. Uh, 14 months before the election, we had our negotiated surrender of Afghanistan to the Taliban. We're in the ninth month of the largest land war in Europe uh, since Berlin fell in 1945. And uh, we all have our biases and areas of interest, but you would have thought that there would have been a little more of a discussion of national security-related issues. But I I think, if anything, it was um, a secondary issue. Uh, in um, all the not just the House races, Senate races, just a general conversation. So, Claude, I guess I wanted to roll roll it your way as as Midrat's resident historian. Um, how did things look while you're closer to the Beltway on those national security issues? Is what I saw here a pretty accurate reflection? Uh, and uh, if so, or if not, what are kind of your thoughts about why national security? fell like it did in the conversation going up to midterms? Sure. Uh, so I think I'll answer that both as a teacher of the subject, but also a practitioner. Uh, you know, the, the first campaign I worked on, I think I was four years old and my mother ran for her first house seat and worked on those campaigns over the next 30 years along with some others. And one thing I learned really quick was the old adage that Tip O'Neill used to say that all politics is local. It's very rare that national security will play a high role uh, in an election. Probably one of the anomalies is, you know, post 9-11. But other than that, people are concerned more with, you know, very rightly their pocketbooks. How are they going to pay their bills? Um, You know, are the potholes being fixed by the local government? So that's why I don't think it was a major issue. I think in the the exit polls, I think it may have been fourth or fifth, maybe even lower in some cases. And certainly when people look at the Navy uh, in terms of Pew polls or Gallup polls, it also ranks pretty low because I I think especially the last year, last 20 years, they've had uh, less visibility uh, during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Um, I think some of the big takeaways, number one, is uh, it looks like 
the not only the Democrats are going to hold the Senate, last numbers I've seen, it's very possible that they will also uh, control the House. What that means is there's going to be a, a lot more of the same. Uh, when you look at the Navy budget, for example, it's not the Navy budget of the 19th or even the early 20th century. You had a lot of um, domestic programs, entitlement programs that comprise the majority of the budget. So it's it's not really something that's going to drive uh, voters or interest groups. Uh, the second issue, I think, is taking a hard look at the veterans who were elected. There are now, I th and again, it's going to be one or two more or less. I don't know. There's still a few House, house races that haven't been decided. Um, there are less than 100 veterans in both the House and the Senate, and I think 16 were uh, recently elected. And most of those are junior officers from Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, so you're not seeing a lot of senior people. Uh, there were two, uh, let's see, General Boldick out of New Hampshire who ran for Senate against uh, Senator Hassan, and um, Admiral Franken who ran against Chuck Grassley in Iowa, uh, both of whom lost. You don't, you don't really see the, the senior officers in the House or the Senate. I think the last admiral to serve in the Senate was in the 1980s, and that would have been um, Admiral Jeremiah Denton, one of the POWs from Vietnam. Uh, but I think that really the big story, anybody who listens to this program, is the loss of Elaine Luria in Virginia and her district. Uh, she served as uh, vice chair. She was only in her second term. And, you know, I'm going to – I'll say this as, as um, first of all, you know, the views, views I expressed today on my own, not those of the Naval Academy or the Navy. Uh, but I, also, I worked last year for Elaine Luria. Uh, for a short time as her legislative director. Uh, it was the third time that I'd worked on Capitol Hill over the course of 32 years. And what I can tell you is this was a more significant loss to a stronger, better Navy than I think most people will realize. It certainly, at least without, beyond our circles. Um, I certainly wouldn't uh, uh, discuss any personal conversations or any conversations that I was witness to with the acting SECNAV or CNO or et cetera, senior officials. But what I will say, having seen her up close and working with her, this is somebody who really put her 20 years of uh, her Navy career to use. She wasn't simply representing her district, which most people understandably on House Armed Services focus on their district. This is somebody who truly had a vision for the future of the Navy, asked superior questions, and at hearings, if you ever watched her, she knew exactly what the people testifying were saying and could immediately uh, disagree with something or point out another major argument. In my opinion, again, uh, I've worked, I'm an independent, I've worked for both uh, Republicans and Democrats, and have donated to both. Uh, I say this as an independent and as a historian. I think Elaine Luria had the potential to be the most significant uh, House member on the Armed Services since Carl Vinson. She knew the Navy that well, and she did her homework looking at what happened before. So I think that's the biggest takeaway from, from the elections. Dirk, you got any comments on what uh, uh, Claude said? Um, uh, uh, absolutely agree with him about the about the 
uh, generalizing the um, importance of national security uh, to um, the average American out in out, once they get outside the uh, the bubble here in the Beltway. Um, the you know as as Claude said as you know quoting Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. Uh, I also have to uh, uh, quote uh, Bill Clinton's famous, uh, it's the economy, stupid, uh, which would make you wonder why uh, American people didn't strongly uh, vote for a change, because I think everybody is, uh, everybody's quite comfortable that uh, the economy is not doing well, and nobody is, uh, nobody's very happy about that. But it's still, I think, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty indeterminate uh, result in the election, um, the, you know, Dems keeping keeping the House possibly with one one Senate pickup. I'm sorry, Dems keeping the Senate with possibly one one seat pickup. And whether whether as Claude just mentioned that the the Dems can pull out keeping the majority in the House, or the Republicans can take the majority. Either way, it's going to be a very very narrow majority for whoever has it. Um, which will make governing uh, just that much more difficult for whoever's in charge in, in the House. Um, the, uh, yeah, let, let, let me ask a, a question on sure. that. If, if, we, if we have a divided government, which would be uh, a Republican-controlled House, whoever little control they have, and, and a, a Democratic president and Democratic Democrat Senate, uh, what, what's that, what does that do in terms of of uh, you know, do the House is the House going to control the budget? And if they control the budget, for example, this is stream of consciousness here. If they control the budget, can they cut social programs and say and put more money to national defense, national security issues? Um, so I'll, I'll I'll start with that one, and Claude, obviously, jump in if you want after I'm done, or in the middle as you prefer. Uh, so. Uh, the practical effect if the Republicans uh, take control of the, of the House um, is that, you know, it, it takes agreement between the House and the Senate to get anything done to pass any law. So the, the difference is, is that you would have the Republican agenda would be at least narrowly what passes the House and the Democrat agenda passing the Senate. And so the, the compromise that would have to happen between the two houses to create actual legislation, both budget and, um, and um, uh, legal changes, authorizing bills, um, you're, you're, you're starting from two different, you know, the, 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 at least the points that you would be coming from would be on the Republican side and the Democrat side to hypothetically meet somewhere in the middle as opposed to on the Democrat side and on the Democrat side to meet somewhere to the left of middle, hypothetically. Um, that's a very uh, kindergarten level assessment at, at that. It's, uh, you know, when you, when you start getting into the details of, of the different factions within each, each party in the house um, and to some extent in the Senate as well, each, each Senator can, really gum things up if he wants to uh, just look at uh, uh, look at Ted Cruz sometimes um, he can slow things down to get votes on amendments that he wants um, the really big change I think would be if the Republicans took control that that would be the end of the January 6th committee uh, there would be more investigations getting started there would be subpoenas um, 
that about subjects that Republicans are concerned about rather than subjects that the Democrats have been concerned about. Uh, but as far as the 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 substance of what actually comes out of legislation gets gets passed, nudge it slightly to the right, but you, it's still going to have to meet somewhere in the middle. I'd add on, I'd add on, excuse me, I'd add on to that uh, a cautionary tale. If the Senate ends up being 50-50 or if the House is just one vote separating the majority from the minority, and that's the fact that some people, sometimes people switch parties. Uh, some better-known cases, you know, just in the past 30, 35 years, Phil Graham was a Democrat, Kim Republican. Uh, same with Ben Nighthorse Campbell and Richard Shelby as well. And what happens then is really interesting because this happened in uh, shoot, 2001. Jim Jeffords was a Republican senator from Vermont, and it was 50-50. And, of course, uh, the Republicans controlled the Senate because the vice president is the president of the Senate. And when he switched, he caucused or he became an independent but decided he was caucusing with the Democrats at that moment the entire control of the Senate changed. So if you have a very close one, it is entirely possible that somebody will switch. Now in the Senate, you know, that power shift, that dynamic is going to be very focused on a few people. On the Democratic side, you're going to have uh, Senators uh, Sinema and uh, Manchin who are going to wield uh, disproportionate control uh, or influence based on how they could vote. And the same is true for Senators Mikowski and Collins. And those four and others have always negotiated to try to, to find uh, third ways, if you will. So I think that's, uh, that's one of the things that could happen. So even if you start in January with, you know, say a Republican House by one vote, in two months later, somebody could switch to the Democratic side and completely upend the process. Uh, I, I would actually agree. I, I was actually in the Senate when uh, when Jeffords switched, and uh, wow, that was uh, that was an interesting time. Um, but I, I would add to what Claude just said about, particularly about the House. If you if you look at just the history of the of the House over over any period of time, there is always a, a handful of seats that come open, whether whether members have resigned or people pass away, it, it, it is fairly common that there are gaps in House seats for some period of time. And if, you're, if say, the Republicans only have a one-seat majority and a couple seats come open, if they were the Republicans that came open, suddenly you've lost your voting majority. Um, and that could cause additional uh, disruption. You know, Dirk, I'll let me roll a question to you that because uh, you were talking about balance and close and, and Claude was as well. And uh, kind of my, one of my hobby horses when, when I have smart people who know the Hill well is um, everybody likes to talk about how somehow we need to reform how DOD works, especially our, our acquisitions. We're still working under the framework of Goldwater Nichols from 1986 the COCOM situation, um, <laughs> we, we've literally done entire shows just on, on that topic. But mm -hmm. when you look at in – 1986, the uh, Republicans held the Senate. They had a 53 to 47 majority. 
over in the House that was controlled by the Democrats under uh, probably the the premier speaker of uh, my lifetime almost, Tip O'Neill still ran herd on it. Uh, but they managed to get Goldwater Nichols through in 86 in the 99th Congress. And mm-hmm. it requires both parties to work. And so, you know, Dirk, if we're looking at this, you know, literally one hand in the House, one hand in the Senate, is that something that might help some type of significant modernization of our, our DOD and our acquisitions and our COCOM system? Or is it something that, especially when you come up on a general, which they were doing during the 99th Congress as well, that would give too much headwind in those that, that desire reform and just going to have to wait for different chemistry? Um, I think that depends a lot on the actual people who are who are in office at the time. Um, the I think everybody would agree that uh, that over the last several years, it seems that we've had less um, ability to work together than we might have in the past. Um, I've always felt that uh, our founders, when they created our system, um, were sort of designed a system that that would intentionally not work well unless there was a pretty reasonably broad agreement about what should be done. And uh, if you don't get anything being done, then that's because there isn't a pretty broad agreement about what should be done. Um, With regard to actual reform of the department, uh, some friends I have talked to would argue that uh, there were over the course of about three years under uh, – under Chairman McCain, uh, there were a number of um, acquisition reform uh, legislation that, that went through as part of the NDAA uh, the three years dur- during the Trump administration. So I'd say probably uh, 17 to 19 uh, NDAAs. Maybe it's 18 to 20. Don't don't hold me to those numbers. Um, but the probably the the most interesting or or the target for reform in the department that is most ripe. I would argue is the uh, is the programming planning and budgeting process, the PPBE process, and there is currently a a uh, a, a blue ribbon panel, a committee, uh, taking a look at how we could reform that system, because the 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 process of budgeting it takes so long that in the modern environment you can't change funding a program fast enough to keep up with the change in requirements. So yes, you have the acquisition process and there's been a lot of a lot of ink spilled about how you can how slow it is and the problems with it and the and the uh, the bureaucracy and that. So that they've they've put some changes into the law that allow if if the acquisition professionals use those changes allow them to speed that up. But the funding cycle has not changed. You, you, are, you are still built when you're building the budget request to Congress. You still start that 18 months ahead of when it goes to Congress, and then once it goes to Congress, it takes, you know, if you're lucky, nine months to pass. Um, sometimes it takes longer than that. So that that reform commission right now, um, be very interested to see what comes out of that as, as sort of a starting point for. Um, potential legislative reform over over the planning, programming, budgeting process. I understand with the, the Goldwater-Nichols, um, obviously a very 
significant piece of legislation in, in completely restructuring how the department works. But that took multiple Congresses worth of effort on the part of uh, on the part of the of the leadership of the uh, of the Armed Services Committees. Um, it, it required some people who were committed to reform, who had an idea about what needed to be done, and they held hearings about it for over, over quite a period of time. And Sal, I, I would add to that that when you're talking about 1986 and you know uh, any chances of bipartisanship, this is a highly polarized House and Senate now. I mean, you can see the, the numbers going back 30 or 40 years in hell. There are fewer and fewer moderates, as I pointed out earlier. But in 1986, consider that the Senate had something like a dozen Republican senators strewn uh, in the Northeast from uh, Maine to uh, Maryland, uh, Virginia. And the House, you had the Blue Dog Democrats who still comprised a significant portion of, of the House. So Tip O'Neill recognized that if he wanted to get anything done, he had to work with the Reagan administration and Senate, Senate Republicans because there was such a large caucus of those blue dog Democrats that really don't exist anymore, much like the, you know, the, the liberal and uh, moderate Republicans have gone by the wayside. Uh, Claude, if we, assuming that the Republicans do get enough uh, votes, counted to be to hold the, to take the house who would you see taking the leadership positions in the committees that would affect uh, national defense the armed services committee and the, the other committees that uh, spool off that is 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 there a leadership that that's uh, noteworthy on the republican side that's a really good question i mean if you're talking more parochially in terms of naval issues um, probably a Jim Banks or somebody, but here, here's the here's the challenge that the House Republicans now have, at least in terms of big Navy. Uh, I think there will now be, with this election, five SEALs having been elected. There were two prior, Dan Crenshaw and, uh, oh, shoot, I, I apologize. I'm, I'm forget. I think we had there was a second SEAL. But I think there are, please correct me if I'm wrong, any of your listeners, I think there are five uh, Navy SEALs. Luttrell. But, yeah, but he was just elected. I thought there was uh, elected, a second yeah. one who was already in. Uh, uh, but you uh, don't have you, you have aviators, you have helicopter pilots, you have people who had careers in the Navy for about five or ten years. I think the only person in the House or Senate who had a full career was probably Senator Mark Kelly, who retired as a captain. Otherwise, you're looking at a lot of uh, Navy lieutenants, lieutenants, lieutenant commanders, uh, Marine captains. So I think their focus is naturally, because of their experiences over the past 20 years, is going to be very different than if you were looking at a SWO. So a lot of the shipbuilding programs, subs, uh, especially, especially as you know, Sal, you've, you've written about the terrible 20s now for more than a decade. So you know the problem better probably than most of the folks on the Hill. Um, so I, I think in terms of finding that replacement or successor to Luria in terms of knowledge, and commitment to that. It's not to say people aren't going to be committed to naval issues, but I think they're going to be focused on their particular districts, as it always has been since the founding of the Republic. If you look at uh, the Jeffersonian gunboats, which were distributed along the eastern seaboard, the first six frigates were distributed. Uh, the USS Pennsylvania, which is built 
only because the chair of the Naval Affairs Committee was from Philadelphia. Uh, but you don't have a lot of shipyards anymore. Now, you know, think about it this way. During World War II, we had, what, 175 Fletcher-class destroyers that were built, and I think they were built at like eight or nine shipyards. Uh, you had about, you had more than 2,000 Liberty ships that were built across 18 shipyards. Well, as you have those shipyards, you're going to have a natural um, caucus in Congress to support that. You know, Shipbuilding Caucus today, geez, Derek, you might have a better idea than I do. I mean, it probably has, it's comprised of, I don't know, five, ten people. I, I just don't know. Uh, but because there simply aren't that many shipyards anymore. You've got BIW up in Maine. You've got Ingalls Shipbuilding down in Pascagoula. Uh, but even, oddly enough, uh, Shelley Fingry, who represents the first CED up in Maine, I think she gave up her seat on armed services a while ago, which is why the second CED uh, Congressman Jared Golden uh, got a seat on our uh, House Armed Services. So uh, I think that's tough to tell right now, uh, Mark. Over. Uh, I would just I would just add one uh, one interesting point about about uh, maybe not uh, new leadership, but uh, Congressman Ken Calvert, who's the ranking member of the uh, House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee. He has not. Uh, been declared the winner in his race yet. He's one of the ones still uh, still pending. Um, it, according to today's Real Clear Politics, he's got uh, uh, where to go. Yeah, so they've only accounted 53% of the votes, and he's ahead 50.7% to 49.3%. That's the ranking member of the of the Defense Approach Subcommittee. Um, I I have no idea whether that will. Uh, uh, whether he will or will not pull it out, but I find it interesting that that, that hasn't been called yet. Um, and, and I have actually, one, I should probably go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, go, sorry. Go ahead, Claude. No, no, I was just going to. Uh, yeah, I can't it. believe I, I didn't think of this also because this is where Dirk and I met almost 20 years ago, working for Senator Collins, who's from Maine, uh, shipbuilding state. But she shifted over from armed services to appropriations in 2011. She is now going to be the ranking member of of uh, Senate appropriations. Had the Republicans taken it, she would have been chair. Obviously, that's that's the role you want, but certainly ranking member is going to have a significant impact on the ships that are being built at BIW and also the work that's uh, done at Fortune Naval Shipyard in New Hampshire, New Hampshire, Maine, slash. So I, I have a caveat to that. Uh, absolutely correct, Claude. She, she is next in line to... Uh, to be the uh, the ranking member or or, or vice chair as, as they call it on the appropriations committees and uh, which would be extremely powerful for um, uh, Navy shipbuilding and and Bath Ironworks in particular because uh, she is certainly a strong supporter. However, um, there there is a potential hiccup to that. Um, I, McConnell. So I've seen a couple. Yes, I've seen a couple of calls. Oh yeah, I mean, in case McConnell calls, is not leader. Yeah. Exactly. So I've seen a couple of calls to postpone leadership elections um, for for the Republicans, which are I guess were originally scheduled for this this coming week. Uh, but if for some reason the Republicans do not return McConnell to leadership as as the uh, as the minority leader, um, yeah, he is right. senior to Collins on the Appropriations Committee, and so almost certainly he would assert that seniority, and he would then become the ranking member of of the appropriate committee in place of her. 
And now that that it, poses a problem for McConnell, though, and for the Republicans, because you know she has been there for ten years now, and if she doesn't get the vice chair, uh, sorry, the ranking uh, position on approps, they've got to figure out uh, from a very realistic standpoint. Uh, how that's going to impact everything as well. Because then true, Collins will true. have some choices. And I'm not speaking for Senator Collins, obviously, but in leader's term. Yeah. But you can see how these things might play out, and we just don't know. Uh, and I, yeah, because I think Robert Byrd may have done that when he left leadership. He took the appropriations role. Well, and uh, interesting point. Uh, currently, uh, Shelby, who is the ranking member of the of both the full appropriations committee, is also the ranking member of the defense subcommittee. Um, one thing McConnell could do uh, if he if he wanted to um, provide some support for Senator Collins uh, would be to take take the full committee ranking membership and let her be the ranking member on the on the appro subcommittee. Um, it. it Various times the um, members have – various chairmen or ranking members have either decided to t- both dual hat themselves as the subcommittee ranking member and the full committee or have let somebody else take the subcommittee. And I, I don't know what the calculus is that, that was involved in that, but I've seen it go both ways. You know, it's interesting because she could probably negotiate something as well because in 1992, uh, when it was called the Year of the Woman, when so many women, several women were elected to the Senate uh, uh, in the post-Clarence Thomas hearings, I think uh, Diane Feinstein of California was the only lawyer among them. So the leadership wanted her immediately on judiciary, which is the top-tier committee. Uh, And Mm. she said, no, I want appropriations. And you do not get normally two top-tier assignments. But uh, if I recall correctly, I think that's why she was both on judiciary and appropriations as a freshman senator. I could be wrong on that. Yeah, I know uh, is- at, at least uh, when, when we were there, uh, the rankings, at least on, on the Republican side, there were four what they called super A committees and then a host of A committees and then B committees. And the, the four super A committees, which you were only allowed to be on one without an exception, were uh, appropriations, finance, armed services, and foreign relations. Although I know that um, exceptions have been made because when Senator Collins first uh, moved to the uh, moved to the appropriations committee, uh, she was able to stay on armed services, although she lost her seniority on the committee at the time. For a number of years, I don't remember how long she was had was in both places, but she was able to do uh, on be on both committees for a period of time. It, let's. I'm glad we we've, we've jumped on to the the Senate here because when we talked in the past, I mean we we even had three two three years ago we had Representative Jim Banks actually came on mid rats. That was a great 30 minute discussion, but a lot of times we do talk about House issues when it comes to national security, especially maritime issues. The the late, great uh, Elaine Loria, of course, Mike Gallagher, Jim Banks. Uh, you know, we've mentioned two of the three so far. But the, the Senate can be a, a little more opaque in trying to find out who those players are besides those, you know, like up in Maine with BIW. And, you know, Dirk, 
wanted to know whether I mean the theory is is the, the they they work together better at the Senate on the serious issues, which I assume national security would go inside that circle. But on the the Democrat and the Republican side of the House, if uh, if listeners wanted to you know have their ear out for certain names and certain players uh, in the next session on the Senate side of the House, besides. You know, Senator Collins, who, what are some of those names up in the Senate people should uh, keep an ear out for for those issues? Well, um, the interesting thing is going to be uh, Senator Inhofe, who's currently the uh, uh, ranking member of the, of the Armed Services, Senate Armed Services Committee. He's retiring. So almost certainly that will result the next uh, Republican to lead the uh, lead the committee to be the ranking member will be Roger Wicker from uh uh, Mississippi. He is uh, an Air Force veteran, um, and he usually the way it works um, is in the Senate is seniority, unless there's a uh, unless there's this, a uh, people have a big issue, or the, it's unusual for seniority not to be the determining factor in who works their way up to the to the chairmanship or ranking membership um, on the various committees. And Wicker is the next guy in line. Um, that's that's obviously the most important piece. Um, Jack Reed will remain as chairman. Um, he has been on the committee for an exceptional length of time, um, and has been the chairman for for uh, quite some time since uh, since Carl Levin uh, retired. I don't even remember how many years ago that was. Um, uh, Reed is a is a former Army West Point graduate. Um, and just without getting into specific uh, names, um, I'd like to detour a little bit and tell you that. Uh, so I, I used to be a staff member on the on the Armed Services Committee uh, quite some time ago. But um, the SASC has a very strong tradition, both among members and among the staff, committee staff, of working in a very bipartisan manner uh, to produce the uh, the NDAA, and. Um, it is the, for the vast majority of, of issues that come out are are bipartisan. Uh, people agree with the with the budget. They agree with most of the legislation and, and, and work together very well to put that together. Um, the the there are typically there will be a handful of issues that are, that are are partisan issues and, and break down partisan lines. Um, I remember back in the uh, in the Bush administration, the uh, the robust nuclear earth penetrator, um, which the uh, Bush administration uh, proposed, and um, that got voted down on a on a straight party line vote. Uh, many other many other um, issues are are based on are more based on whether members' individual interest and less on party. Um, so if you're building a widget. And it is, you know, it's made in your state, and that's obviously jobs for your state. Members tend to be more supportive of that than if the widget's not built in your state. Um, there's a lot of nuances to that, obviously. If the department doesn't want it and or it's clearly not, you know, not a good thing for the country, you know, that it's not it's not an absolute that members will support something even if it's in their state. But you can have the Joint Strike Fighter just pulling a program out of a hat and so and members are more likely to support it across party lines than um 
than would be um, so or, or disagree with it for other reasons. Uh, C-130s actually are, are usually a, a program that, that seems to have have that a lot. Uh, who's going to make them and whose guard units get them? Um, always, always something that causes uh, indiv- individual individual um, wrangling, I suppose would be the way to put it. But uh, uh, broadly, um, the Senate Armed Services Committee very much very much a bipartisan effort in ninety five percent of what's done. I think another example of that, Dirk, is probably the BRAC process because I was working for Mitchell during the early 90s during that BRAC. Yep. And then um, in 2004, remember, we had another BRAC. You may, you may have just gone to Iraq at that point, uh, but I remember a lot of meetings we had with the staff, uh, the delegation staff for Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, because I remember Kennedy's staff oh, was yeah. there, yep. uh, when we yep. thought that Portsmouth Naval Shipyard was going to be hit. And it ended yeah. up being uh, Brunswick Naval Air Station instead, and then in the 90s it was Loring Air Force Base. But it's really amazing how uh, bipartisan, right, that the staff are, uh, yeah. by and large, to, to work together on common issues. I think it, it happens more frequently than, than the public would expect. Uh, that, that's absolutely true, and, and you're correct, Claude. I was, I, was, I was there for a large part of the uh, – of the uh, effort to save Portsmouth and uh, and other bases in Maine, uh, and got us through the hearing in Boston uh, before I had to leave for Iraq. Uh, but um, yeah, the very very bipartisan effort, both uh, among the among the Maine delegation and the New Hampshire delegation, and um, Senator Kennedy's office, who was interested, uh, even though it wasn't his state. Um, I, I I'll even tell a story about. Um, sort of the essence of bipartisanship. So the, the first member I worked for was uh, was Senator Jim Bunning from Kentucky. Uh, back in uh, 2001 to 2003, I worked for him. And I think the second year I worked for him, there was a amendment he wanted to add during markup to, uh, for the, uh, for the uh, NDAA. And so his markup is when the members of the committee get together and the, you have what's the, the chairman's mark, which is the draft, and then members who want to add or subtract something offer amendments, and it gets voted on uh, dur- during the committee, and those are usually closed proceedings. Um, but the, the amendment that Senator Bunning wanted to offer, turns out Senator Kennedy's office uh, was also very interested, and we worked uh, very closely with his staff um, going back and forth to, to craft an amendment that both did what we wanted to do and um, and met it was something that Senator Kennedy could support. So probably the, the two members of the Senate at the time who were farthest apart uh, ideologically, Jim Bunning, certainly one of the most conservative senators on the Senate at the time, and Ted Kennedy, one of the most liberal. But nevertheless, uh, during markup, we offered the Bunning-Kennedy Amendment to the NDAA, uh, which immediately resulted in in two minutes of jokes from the other members about the Bunning-Kennedy Amendment, and they just accepted it. (laughs) It But uh, a prime example of, of bipartisanship that you would not normally, that most Americans don't necessarily see. Yeah, well, yeah, and let, 
Let me let me ask this. Biden administration just recently put out the national defense strategy, and in in the negotiations in Congress, I mean, do they do the do the committees handling this stuff and the staffers handling uh, national defense issues? Do they take this guidance from the the president uh, and and try and work with it, or is it just one of those documents that kind of floats out there and and uh, doesn't mean a whole lot because people are going to do what they're going to do anyway? So uh, putting on my executive branch hat, um, the, the, the strategy from, from the president, the national defense strategy or the national security strategy, uh, those, those are guidance for the executive branch. This is, this is, what, this is how the president sees how we are going to what, – what our, our threats are to the country and how we are going to prepare ourselves to protect the country against them. Um, what, what you know, Congress certainly staff will read will read those and be informed by that. But that you know, Congress has a you know as, as an independent and co-equal branch of government, they have their own responsibilities for for putting their stamp from both a legal and a, and a uh, budget perspective on on what happens in the department. So what what. What more likely happens is what will most likely happen is at least the way it should happen is the the president issues the national security strategy and, and the department would issue the national defense strategy, and that would affect how the the department and the the government the executive branch overall puts together the annual budget request that goes to Congress and so the budget request that comes to Congress that is what they that is the starting point from which they then uh, put together the NDAA, put together the uh, uh, defense approves and, and MILCON approves bills. Uh, so the the strategies will should inform the budget request, but the budget request is what is what Congress really has the opportunity to act on. The, the reason I asked that the reason I asked that question is because one of the parts of the strategy is uh, we're supposed to be pacing. Uh, our our defense to the growing uh, multi dimension multi domain threat posed by the PRC and and since the PRC's navy has grown enormously, uh, one would think that somebody, the, the president in the submission of the budget uh, I, to Congress, or the Congress people themselves would be be saying, well, you know, how are we going to if we if we provide more tanks, that's really not going to meet the. the uh, <laughs> ship demand. So, so right. just throwing that out. But what 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 happens in that case? Is I mean, does somebody really see that and say uh, this means something? We really need to look more at the navy, or are we stuck in the everybody gets an equal share problem? Um, I I am exceptionally confident that Congress, uh, particularly the members on the on the Armed Services and, and Appropriations Committees, are very aware of the of the threat uh, from China, uh, naval and otherwise. Um, how that works out in the in the both what comes over from the from the president in the budget request and what uh, what the armed services and appropriation committees decide to do with that request um, are are you know still to be determined. Um, the I know in the in the past you have had uh, in, in administrations of both of both parties you have had Congress add ships. To the budget that Congress more than what Congress asked for, or more than what the, the administration asked for, um, and with um, 
with if Senator Collins is on the uh, is the ranking member on the Appropriations Committee, that is much more likely to happen. I would I would venture to guess. Um, I'm actually going to disagree with Dirk slightly on this, only because I was watching some Hask hearings earlier this year, uh, and the chairman. I remember him cutting, and I have this coming up tomorrow, and, and this is based on a speech I gave a, a few weeks ago. Uh, and the quote by the Hask chairman was absolutely shocking because he had cut off somebody who was talking about uh, improving the Navy, and he said, you know, let's not freak ourselves out over what China may or may not have. Uh, you know, they don't have – their ships aren't as good, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I don't know if that was uh, something that he was doing simply to ensure that the budget would remain limited uh, for that year or not, but I, I found that kind of disconcerting when you're talking about recognizing what the, the, the uh, real threats are. Well, I, yeah, I agree with you on that. Oh, go ahead, Dirk. So, no, I was just I, I absolutely agree that that's a very disconcerting uh, comment, particularly coming from the chairman of the uh, of the Armed Services Committee. Yeah, I, I, you see that, and again, I'm not, I'm not doing this to, to ping on him, but I think everybody here remembers the comment made by President uh, Biden during the 2020 election about the Chinese. There does seem to be, especially um, uh, a certain cohort of, of people in Congress you think would be better up to speed. Uh, they have a view of uh, Chinese capability that's very on point for 2002, but a lot, a lot has happened for two decades. And I, I want to take that. I want to circle back to to one of the comments, Claude, you, you made earlier about uh, Senator Loria and her informed background as a as a fellow member of the esteemed uh, retired Navy 05 <laughs> category. Um, that there's a term a lot of people use that I, I'd like to hear both of y'all uh, really flesh out. People talk about congressional oversight. And there's what people see, which unfortunately you get the C-SPAN effect where people go up and they show up two minutes before their question. They make a statement that's unrelated to anything and they leave to get their soundbite. But then you have people, uh, Representative Loria is really good with this, uh, Representative Waltz, uh, Gallagher as well, where because they have a military background, they're able to ask very specific detailed questions and follow-up, and they're not – intimidated is not the right word, but we also see there are some people in Congress who seem to be on tinder hooks around anybody that has a lot of bling and braid, whereas uh, members of Congress and the Senate who have a military background tend to be able to do that oversight function. So when people are, are hoping for oversight and congressional oversight, is there a disconnect between people's expectation about what can be done for oversight versus the actual practical application of it, whether it's in the Senate, in the House, or a combination? Derek, do you want to take that first or do you want me to? Give it your best shot. <laughs> <laughs> Great. You owe me a bottle of scotch, brother. Um, <laughs> as long as I get to split that, it with you. That's a tough one because there is some oversight that happens on a limited basis. 
for example, after hearings, members are uh, members can submit a QFR question for the record to clarify something that somebody has said in the hearing. Uh, you know, whether it's one of the generals, admirals, civilian SESs, uh, they can. You know, there's oftentimes letter writing campaigns that we'd often see this between members saying, "Hey, we've got this issue. What if you know?" the 15 of us sign this letter, try to get an answer from SECNAV or SECDAF or somebody. Um, but I think we have to keep in mind that each member has uh, a staff of, gosh, about nine or ten in the house uh, and, pro and, you know, another, I don't know, 15 or 20 in the district. And the Senate, on the Senate side, you may be talking a staff of 15 or 20, I guess, and then uh, others throughout the state. And with that, they have a lot of local issues. Again, going back to that issue of what, what is of concern to the member, their first priority is to the constituents. So in addition to the legislation, you've got a lot of constituents who are asking for things. And again, giving, uh, using a, drawing an example from my own family experience, I lived in a city that was inland in Maine uh, that my mother represented as a House member and senator. I can tell you right now, I heard, overheard a lot of meetings, took a lot of phone calls, spoke to a lot of people. Nobody, nobody in my town was interested in the price of lobster on the coast or what was happening to the potatoes up north in Aroostook County. Uh, it was all localized, and so the, you know, whether it was my mother or other representatives, tended to legislate like that. So then when you're talking about policy on top of constituent service, on top of legislation, I think there's a limitation to what they can do, even though it, it is, they are required to do. I think they do the best they can with what they have. Uh, but we all have limitations. Dirk, is that, is that sort of on point? Uh, yes, I ag agree. As always, I agree with just about everything Claude says. Um, just about. <laughs> um, as, as far as oversight goes, so yes, absolutely. Um, the members are always concerned about what their constituents are concerned about. If they want to remain members, they have to be. Um, and, and they're also concerned about um, state or, or district issues um, that, that, you know, making sure their, the jobs in their district don't go away, making sure that the C-130s for their National Guard unit don't don't go away, whatever the specific issue is. But, mem but my experience um, with members on the, on the Armed Services Committee is particularly the ones that have been there for a while. Um, they're also concerned about the larger, um, the larger problems that are that are confronting the department, that are confronting our national defense. And Claude, Claude is correct um, that there is a limit to. Um, the bandwidth that members have and, and the staff available to conduct uh, detailed oversight about, you know, it's a $700 billion budget. Um, and, you know, the Armed Services Committees, so you, you've got individual members uh, and, you know, they typically have a, a single individual who's, who is doing their defense work. And then there's the committee staff. Uh, Armed Services Committee is probably uh, maybe – majority and minority I'm ballparking 35 people staff on, on the Senate side. Don't, don't hold me to that number. Um, the, for, for, you know, there, there's only so much that many people can do. And, and a lot of the really detailed oversight about 
both the big issues and about the about the the more technical issues is do, is done by the committee staff. Um, they are they are supposed to be the duty experts within their within their portfolio. And but even even so, um, uh, you, you know if you're doing you know navy navy procurement. Um, that's billions and billions of dollars, and that's one guy on the majority and one guy in the minority who's responsible for that kind of oversight. So there, there, there is a practical limitation in what you can, how much you can dig in. But there's another factor, too, and that's the fact that uh, leg the legislative process can often be like, uh, they say, naval intelligence and little kids' soccer game. You know, wherever the ball <laughs> is, that's where people are going to go. Uh, you know, a couple of examples of this, uh, you know, in 04, it was the Abu Ghraib disaster uh, that resulted in several uh, several hearings. Following year, I think it was the Walter Reed. So as those issues come up, people tend to focus on those and not on longer-term issues. And that's why I want to come back to Lane Luria. And what she really brought to the table, uh, from what I saw, is that she was able to manage these short-term issues but she never failed to keep her eye off the long game. That is truly what we lost, and, and that foresight and, and learning. I mean, the amount of time she spent on, uh, on some of these discussions uh, is, is really, was really astounding. Uh, so I think that's, that's the other consideration for, for oversight as well. Well, this is a, another one of those questions. We've got some a bunch of new people coming in to uh, to, to Congress and and the Senate. How long does it take to to, to for you staff guys to train your uh, congressmen and senators to, to to teach them what the the realities are of of their position? And how do you see that working out in these content, uh, very what's the, I'm using going to use the word contentious times here? I'll, I'll let Dirk answer that only because by the time I got to <laughs> Mitch, uh, Mitchell's office, he had already been there for more than a decade, and I think the same was true. Yeah, same was true for Senator Collins, and you know Congresswoman Luria had been around for a couple of terms. So, Dirk, did did you work for first termers with Jim Bunning or no. first termer when you when you worked for more? No, no. Uh, when I, when I worked for Bunning, uh, he had been. I think he he was starting his when I went to work for him. He'd been in the Senate for two years at that point. Uh, but he had, I think, 14 or 16 years in the House before that, so he was not remotely uh, a, a new new guy to uh, to the whole process. Obviously, Senate and House uh, slightly different, but uh, uh, yeah, he was not a, he was not new to understanding of what what could and could not be done. Um, you know. Uh, that, that's a very, that's a very it depends uh, kind of question. Uh, I'm not sure if that was Sal or Eagle One who asked that, but um, the the if 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 a member if a brand new member comes in and is successful at getting on to say the Armed Services Committee, almost certainly they're going to want to try and hire somebody who has um, who has some some background in in the defense realm, either as has been a defense staffer for other members previously, has served in the military, or more likely both. Um, they there is you know you can obviously help your member, you know learn learn about the process and how the committee works. Um, but there's also a lot of learning I think that goes on among the members. 
Um, and in, you know, whether in your Republican or Democrat caucus or uh, just in, in conversations in the hallway, if you will. Um, so I, I think that it's getting a sense of what you can and can't do. I, my sense is it comes pretty quickly. Hopefully that answers your question. And, well, speaking of things that come pretty quickly, that was a very fast hour. Uh, Claude and Kirk, I really, uh, excuse me, Dirk, I really appreciate you um, investing some time with us today uh, to, to talk about uh, some of the issues uh, that we, we saw at, at the midterm elections. I think uh, it'll be, as of 1 January, you never know what 2023 will hold. Each year seems <laughs> to be a little more interesting. But uh, that's all right. Uh, that's I think uh, for, for both of you gentlemen, that's called job security. If things got boring, then there'd be nothing to explain or, or to teach people about. And uh, Dirk, as a, as the new guy, I'll go ahead and roll to you. I know um, with uh, a lot of the jobs you've had, you've uh, you've been working in the in the background and supporting other folks. But if if listeners wanted to, to check in on the work you're doing and some of the areas you're focused on, um, and then Claude, you could just follow on from there. Where's a good place for uh, listeners to look? Uh, well, I'm uh, both uh, with the uh, George Mason uh, Law. School uh, National Security Institute. I'm a visiting fellow there, so from a from a uh, policy perspective, that's where I can sort of hang my hat. And then uh, my day job is I actually work for a, a cybersecurity company. That's the uh, Layer Eight Security. So um, e- either of those places, you can find me. Claude. Claude. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at C.G. Barraby, uh, and my, let's see, I've got a few books coming out at the, my new publisher is is uh, releasing revised second editions of my first two novels here in the next few months, and then that'll be followed by my third new novel, um, which will deal with South China Sea, China, terrorists, drones. I think, I think I've thrown everything at it except uh, putting Evil One in the book this time, so. <laughs> and I have to say... I've read both of those books, and they're really good. So I highly encourage people to pick up the uh, the, the new versions coming out. That's a second bottle of scotch for you, Dirk. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Let me throw my thanks out, gentlemen. Enjoy the conversation, and uh, thanks for putting up with our our uh, uh, sometimes uh, totally ignorance-based, ignorance-based questions. <laughs> thanks a lot. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. We really have enjoyed it and appreciate your time. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. Until next time, we hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. Malone 